Courageously joining me on the journey known as the One Year Bible Tour, in which we incrementally read through the Bible in a year, with daily portions from the Old and New Testaments. My name is David McAdam, and I am pleased to serve as your read-along friend and tour guide. We hope to make this tour as rewarding as possible by pointing out highlights and encouraging you to press on when the going gets tough. We've been hitting some more challenging terrain as we read the genealogies in the first nine chapters of the book of First Chronicles. I know it's tempting to skip this part. Some missionaries who thought they were doing native islanders a service by bypassing the genealogies were discouraged when they did not see any of them coming to faith. However, when they eventually included the genealogies, there were many conversions. Why? Because the indigenous people thought that the missionaries were merely sharing legends. When they presented the gospel in the context of the genealogies, Then they understood that the Bible was recording the histories of real people with real families, descendants, and ancestors just as they had. In the book of Chronicles, the genealogies were vitally important because during the period of the restoration of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, people needed to prove their ancestry, particularly in relationship to the Davidic and Levitical line. The genealogies in Chronicles anticipate the Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah as a descendant of King David. Today we will be starting with 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 5. In the previous chapters, we examined the genealogy of Adam, then Noah's sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. This was followed by the genealogy of Abraham and Isaac, then Esau, all in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we followed with the sons of Judah, chapter 3, the sons of David, then the Davidic kings descended through King Solomon. I believe that some of these names would have been familiar to you as we read about them in the previous books of First and Second Kings. Now in chapter 4, the chronicler returns to focus on the tribe of Judah as this relates to the geographical information of their tribal lands of inheritance. As we've mentioned before, First and Second Chronicles will focus primarily on the southern kingdom of Judah with reference to the northern kingdom only as it relates to their history. So please bear with us as we read through these chapters recorded for a divine purpose as God moves towards his objective of bringing forth the Messiah, the greater king and the greater kingdom and the greater priest, and not only a greater priesthood, but because the king and priest are united as one in the Messiah, it will be referred to as a royal priesthood. The Apostle Peter refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's be prepared to bushwhack our way through this list of unfamiliar-sounding names, and we will get over this hill and find our way back into the biblical narrative. First Chronicles chapter 4, beginning with verse 5, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Asher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hela and Naara. Naara bore him Azuzam, Hefer, Temeni, and Hahahashtari. These were the sons of Naara the sons of Hela, Zareth, Izhar, and Ethnon. Koz fathered Anub, Zobedah, and the clans of Aharhel, the son of Harum. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. 
Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, O that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Chelub, the brother of Shuha, fathered Mehir, who fathered Eshton. Eshton fathered beth Rapha, Paseah, and Tehina, the father of Irnahash. These are the men of Rekah, the sons of Kenaz, Othniel, and Sariah. And the sons of Othniel, Hathath, and Meonathai. Meonathai fathered Ophrah, and Sariah fathered Joab, the father of Giharashim, so called because they were craftsmen. The sons of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Ira, Ella, and Naam, and the son of Ella, Kenaz, the sons of Jehalalel, Ziph, Zipha, Tyria, and Azarel, the sons of Ezra, Jether, Mered, Epher, and Jalon. These are the sons of Bithiah, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Mered married, and she conceived and bore Miriam, Shammai, and Ishbah, the father of Eshtemoah, and his Judahite wife bore Jared, the father of Gedor, Heber, the father of Soko, and Jekuthiel, the father of Zanoah. The sons of the wife of Hodiah, the sister of Nahum, were the fathers of Kelah, the Garmite, and Eshtemoah, the Maakathite. The sons of Shimon, Amnon, Rina, Ben-Hanan, and Tilon. The sons of Ishi, Zoheth, and Ben-Zoheth. The sons of Shelah, the son of Judah. Er, the father of Lekah, Laada, the father of Marashah, and the clans of the house of linen workers at Beth Ashbeah, and Joachim, and the men of Kozabah, and Joash, and Zaraf, who ruled in Moab and returned to Lehem. Now the records are ancient. These were the potters who were inhabitants of Netaim and Gedarah. They lived there in the king's service. Descendants of Simeon. The sons of Simeon, Nemuel, Jamin, Jareb, Zerah, Shaul, Shalom was his son, Mibsam his son, Mishma his son, the sons of Mishma, Hamuel his son, Zakur his son, Shimai his son. Shimai had sixteen sons and six daughters, but his brothers did not have many children, nor did all their clan multiply like the men of Judah. They lived in Beersheba, Moladah, Hazar Hual, Bilhah, Ezem, Tolad, Bethuel, Horma, Ziklag, Beth Markaboth, Hazar Susim, Beth Biri, and Sha'araim. These were their cities until David reigned, and their villages were Atam, Ain, Rimon, Tokhen, and Ashan, five cities, along with all their villages that were around these cities as far as Baal. These were their settlements, and they kept a genealogical record. Meshabab, Jamlek, Joshua, the son of Amaziah, Joel, Jehu, the son of Joshibiah, the son of Sariah, son of Asiel, Elioene, Jeacobah, Jeshohoiah, Asiah, Adiel, Jesamiel, Beniah, Ziza, the son of Shiphi, son of Alon, son of Jediah, son of Shimri, son of Shemaiah. These mentioned by name were princes in their clans, and their fathers' houses increased greatly. They journeyed to the entrance of Gedor, to the east side of the valley, to seek pasture for their flocks, where they found rich, good pasture, and the land was very broad, quiet, and peaceful, for the former inhabitants there belonged to Ham. These, registered by name, 
came in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and destroyed their tents, and the Meunites who were found there, and marked them for destruction to this day, and settled in their place, because there was pasture there for their flocks. And some of them, five hundred men of the Simeonites, went to Mount Seir, having as their leaders Pelatiah, Neariah, Rephiah, and Uziel, the sons of Ishi. And they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and they have lived there to this day. The Descendants of Reuben, Chapter 5 The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Joel, Shemaiah his son, Gog his son, Shemai his son, Micah his son, Reiah his son, Baal his son, Beera his son, whom Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, carried away into exile. He was a chief of the Reubenites. And his kinsmen by their clans, when the genealogy of their generations was recorded, the chief, Jael and Zechariah, and Bela the son of Azaz, son of Shema, son of Joel, who lived in Aroer as far as Nebo and Baal-Meon. He also lived to the east as far as the entrance of the desert side of the Euphrates, because their livestock had multiplied in the land of Gilead. And in the days of Saul they waged war against the Hagrites, who fell into their hand, and they lived in their tents throughout all the region east of Gilead. Descendants of Gad The sons of Gad lived over against them in the land of Bashan as far as Salaka. Joel, the chief, Shapham the second, Janai, and Shaphat in Bashan, and their kinsmen according to their father's houses, Michael, Meshulam, Sheba, Jorai, Jachan, Zia, and Eber, seven. These were the sons of Abihel, the son of Huri, son of Jaroah, son of Gilead, son of Michael, son of Jeshishai, son of Jahdo, son of Buz. Ahi, the son of Abdiel, son of Guni, was the chief in their father's houses, and they lived in Gilead, in Bashan, and its towns, and in all the pasture lands of Sharon to their limits. All of these were recorded in genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. And this concludes today's portion from our reading in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. Now let's take a few moments to reflect upon what we have just read. As the chronicler lists the genealogies for the tribe of Judah, we read of Jabez. First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 9. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother named him Jabez, saying, Because I bore him with pain. Ironically, Jabez is listed with no reference to the names of father, mother, or siblings. We know his mother gave birth to him in pain, and therefore named him Jabez, meaning sorrow. The only thing we learn about him is that he prayed, and God answered his prayer. Now Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed, and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, that it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 10. His prayer request was that God's hand of blessing would be upon his life in such a way that his life would not be a sorrow, a pain, but a joy. He asked that he would not be limited to what he inherited of a name in the genealogy of Adam, the natural man, 
but that the Lord would enlarge his territory beyond what was originally allotted to him. This is a prophetic picture of the provision in the new covenant for believers to be delivered from the bondages we inherited in Adam. His prayer request anticipates a new inheritance. Our borders are enlarged in the covenant that God made with his Son. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Jabez's prayer is not meant to be a model prayer. It is not given in Scripture to be repeated verbatim as a formula for a blessing or a prayer to be recited habitually. Some have used the prayer of Jabez as if it were a prayer formula to be repeated daily, something Jesus warned against in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. The prayer is included in Scripture as an example of a man who rose to dignify the trial of his inherited circumstances by asking God to bless him in such a way that his natural allotment in life would be transcended. It is an example of prayer, not a model prayer. Those who make it a model prayer are taking the Bible narrative and making it normative. When Jesus taught us to pray, he did not tell us to pray the prayer of Jabez. He did not even give us specific words to recite. He did not say, pray this prayer. He said, pray then in this way, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. When he gave the disciples prayer, it was meant to be a guide so that we could pray in the Spirit, from the heart, with requests that are rightly aligned to the truth of who God is. Hallowed be thy name, his kingdom agenda, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A heavenly perspective, on earth as it is in heaven, looking to the Lord for our daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. With an ungrieved spirit, we are rightly relating to the gospel's truth about forgiveness and recognizing our need for God's preserving power to keep us from temptation and the snares of the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9-13 through 13, and Luke chapter 11, verses 1-5. through 5. As we read the genealogy of First Chronicles, we come across more craftsmen in the tribal line of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Sariah was the father of Joab, the father of Gi-Harashim. Harashim means Valley of Craftsmen, and was named because of the talents belonging to its inhabitants, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 14. The Caleb we read about in the book of Joshua is listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 15. We get to know the names of his family members. One of Ezra's son, Mered, marries a pharaoh's daughter, in chapter 4, verse 18. Shemai has quite a sizable family of 22 children, in chapter 4, verse 27. In chapter 5, we are reminded that Reuben forfeited his rights as the firstborn son of Jacob due to defiling his father's marriage bed, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. This betrayal angered Jacob to the degree that he transferred the right of the firstborn to the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. It is encouraging to read of those who call out to the Lord in the day of battle and experience His deliverance in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 20. Now let's go to our next stop in our Bible tour to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 25, verses 1 through 27. Paul appeals to Caesar. Acts chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, 
and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who came down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If, then, I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul before Agrippa and Bernice Now when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable, in sending a prisoner, not to indicate the charges against him. And this concludes our reading of the New Testament portion from the book of Acts. We are reminded of God's sovereign purposes even in times when we feel stuck. Paul had broken no law, was illegally arrested, beaten, and imprisoned. Although he was exonerated and rescued from being victim of a murderous plot, he was taken as a prisoner to the Praetorium in Caesarea and held in custody for two years. Paul wanted to get on with his ministry. He knew that he had respected the law of the land and the law of God. 
Therefore his conscience was clear. He had been given a promise that he would take the gospel to Rome. But when? How? This confinement must have been especially difficult for this man of action. Like Job or the psalmist, he might have cried out to God, How long, O Lord? He knew that God had put him in this situation, no matter how uncomfortable or inconvenient, for his purpose, and he looked for every opportunity to testify of the gospel. Once again, Paul makes his defense against the three major charges that the chief priests and Jewish leaders were making against him, as Festus calls for another hearing in Caesarea. He wisely refuses to give in to the chief priest's request to bring Paul to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 25, verse 8. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Because Paul wants to be heard and given a fair trial as a Roman citizen, he exercises his right to appeal to Caesar and therefore be tried in Rome. A few days later, King Agrippa and his sister-slash-wife, Bernice, arrive in Caesarea. Agrippa asks to hear Paul's case out of curiosity. Festus asks for their help in how he should sum up Paul's case in his letter to Caesar, seeing that there are no charges deserving of death. In the next chapter, we will hear Paul's defense. Now we move on to the Bible's songbook, the book of Psalms, Psalm 5, verses 1 through 12. Lead me in your righteousness, to the choirmaster, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's take a few moments to reflect upon this psalm. The holiness of God comes across in Psalm 5. God has zero tolerance for sin, in Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. Yet he has a heart for offering mercy, in verse 7. Notice the prayer request, Lead me in your righteousness. This is what is known as an imprecatory psalm. The word imprecate means to pray evil against or to invoke a curse upon. They jar our sensitivities when we think of the Lord's counsel to love our enemies and pray for those who treat us despitefully. The Asbury Bible Commentary makes this note, quote, Contemporary readers, particularly those in more affluent societies, can allow these prayers to help them enter the suffering life of the people of God, to transport them from their relative ease into the ghastly suffering and consternation of persons who have been uprooted, mocked, or abused. These prayers awaken the conscience to the human cry for redress, 
the cosmic demand for moral order and justice. They can lead one to feel as deeply as one ought the horrendous insult to Yahweh and his creation, perpetuated by those who lie and cheat and kill and abuse and blaspheme. Made callous by exposure to continual evil, one may lose the sense of outrage these evils deserve, whether done to us or to others or to God. These prayers awaken that outrage, which is to be offered to God and which motivates to redemptive action. End quote. These prayers can also articulate our own disquiet when we are caught in the agony and emotional upheaval of life's incongruities and injustices, when, for whatever reasons, we find ourselves unable to appropriate the mind of the Master for the enemy, these prayers can provide a place of prayer from which to start, leading through the desire for vengeance to the prayer for blessing and redemption to which we are called. And now let's go to the Bible's treasure chest of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. This proverb serves as a warning. If biblical practices for conflict resolution are violated, reconciliation becomes extremely difficult. For example, if you borrow an offense from someone who's been offended by a third party, you put yourself outside the plan Jesus set forth in Matthew 18.15 when he said, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Conflicts can solidify into insurmountable, unpenetrable barriers of prejudice and resentment that turns friends into enemies if we are not careful to deal with offenses when they arise. We are to do all that we can to resolve conflicts quickly, privately, directly, honestly, and lovingly, as Christ instructed. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, there are times we cry out, How long? Help us to realize that your delays are not denials. We affirm that your plan and purposes will bring glory to your name and benefit to those who trust you. We look to you for your provision in the new covenant to enable us to transcend the limitations of our Adamic inheritance. We thank you for these examples of prayers being answered. You hear our voice as we lay our requests before you and wait in expectation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us on this seventh day of the seventh month, and I trust that you have been encouraged and given insights for living. We appreciate getting your feedback. If you have any questions or comments, you can write to us at podcast at newlife.org or leave comments wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like a written copy of our commentary on today's portion and each day's portion, you can subscribe to a daily email at our website, newlife.org. So until next time, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shalom.